welcome. Happy Sunday morning to those of you here with us as well as those who uh, may be joining us via live stream this morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Chris, and we are in week three of uh, a sermon series called We Believe. We're just kind of going through line by line, and we're exploring the Apostles' Creed. If you missed the last two weeks, just try to give you a quick history of what the Creed is while we're studying it. The Creed is one of the oldest creeds that the church has proclaimed throughout time and history. So for about 1,800 years, a little over 1,800 years, uh, Christians from all stripes and backgrounds and denominations and generations have proclaimed this creed as sort of a core, uh, central, foundational statement for what we believe. And so if you're here, if you're watching online and and you're not yet a Christian, uh, we're happy that you're here. I think this is a great week for you because you're going to kind of get a a little peek behind the curtain, uh, as it were, about what we actually believe as followers of Jesus. And the creed is going to help us accomplish that. Now, the creed, if you don't uh, know a lot about it, it begins in the book of Genesis. So we started last week with, right, the God, the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So that's Genesis chapter 1. It goes all the way through to the last book of the Bible in Revelation with the return of Jesus and eternal life. And so what the creed is, is really just this beautiful distillation of the entire gospel narrative down to this little 100-word creed that even small children can memorize um, and reside. And so I think it's super help, helpful for us as a faith community to look at this ancient creed, the scriptures that, that really birthed this ancient creed. Now, you remember week one, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the distinction between knowing something and believing in something, right? And that, that actually is a, is a huge difference. Knowing something is not the same thing as believing in something, right? Knowledge doesn't necessarily change your life, right? If that were true, all of us would be getting up at 4.30 in the morning and jogging seven miles before work and eating kale chips and stuff like that. Most of us don't do that, right? Knowledge doesn't change our life, but real true belief changes our actions, right? And so we we talked about uh, last week this whole idea that knowledge is not the same thing as true belief. One of the ways that I always like to illustrate this from this truth from the scriptures is uh, when I was a, a junior or between my sophomore and junior years in college, I transferred universities, right? I'd given my life to Jesus, and I just needed a, a, a new start, a fresh start, new friends, new scenery, the whole nine yards. And so I got to my, my new university campus, and very early on, like my first week there, I saw this beautiful girl walking on campus with long, blonde, flowing hair, and I said, my God, I'm in the right place. You have sent me to my mission field. And, um, and so, t- I, you know, I started asking people, I mean, who is this girl? And uh, it turns out we had a couple of mutual friends, and so I would sit down and interrogate them. I found out her name was Cheryl, and she was on the swim team, and she actually grew up as an MK in Africa. And lo and behold, I also grew up as an MK, so I'm like, bam, it's, it was meant to be. And, and so I learned all these things about her, but the reality is it wasn't until I mustered up enough courage to ask her on a date that I actually truly began to get to know her. And it wasn't until I truly began to get to know her that I actually believed in my heart that she was my future wife. I just had to convince her of that, of that reality. Right? And, and, and then once, once that happened, my, my life, my actions began to change. I began to do things that I wouldn't have otherwise done when she was an important part of my life. And I believed that she was my future wife. I would, I would watch really lame, girly movies on Friday nights, you know, that, which I never would have done before. 
but, but I, I wanted to do that for her. So my, my life changed, my actions changed to follow my belief. It, wasn't any, it was not any longer just knowledge about someone. It was belief that she was my wife, and that began to change my actions. And that is the same truth that applies in the spiritual realm as well. Now, last week, we, we talked about the first line of the creed. We talked about how God is the Father Almighty. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And we said that God is unimaginably powerful. He's breathtakingly personal. He is the exquisite designer of all. And the best news of all is he wants, he desires, he designed you to be in relationship with him. Did you know that? That you can actually know your creator, not just know facts about God. You can actually know him like you know the person sitting right next to you. And he wants you to have that dynamic, active relationship with him through Jesus Christ. That's possible. And so I want to, I want to start uh, this morning just by asking you a question. I'll put it on the screens for you. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I would submit to you this morning, that is probably the most important question that any of us will ever answer. Who is Jesus? Now, now, I'm just guessing if I were to go to downtown Asheville and just kind of walk the streets this afternoon and, and pull 20 people, ask 20 people that very question, who is Jesus, I'm guessing I probably would get a variety of answers, wouldn't I? Some people would probably say, well, he was, he was a good man, he was a, he was a moral example. Others would say he was a, a religious leader, he was kind of a charismatic leader. Others would say he was a lunatic. And yet there would be others like me and maybe like you who would say, he was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. He was God wrapped in humanity. And so, who is Jesus? That's the question that we'll be answering from the Creed together this morning. The second line of the Apostles' Creed introduces us to this Jesus from a historical and biblical uh, perspective. This is what Christians have believed and proclaimed for 2,000 years. And so if you're here and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you claim to be a Christian, you need to know this is where we land as historical Orthodox Christians. This is where we land on who Jesus is. And so let me go ahead and give you that second line of the creed. We'll put it up on the screens for you. You can read it with me if you want. This is what it says. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Now I think of that brief statement, we get four key facets of the Messiah and who he is. The second person of our Trinitarian God, right? One God, that's what we believe as Christians. One God in three persons. Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all distinct, all different, all unique, different roles, but all fully God. Now if that makes your mind want to splinter into a thousand little pieces, welcome to the club. It does mine as well. Now let me go ahead and give you the outline for the morning. For you type A folks, here's the outline. We're going to look at the Messiah in four key aspects. We're going to look at him as Jesus. We're going to look at him as the Christ, as the Son, and as Lord. So those will be kind of the four elements. That's the outline. And then we'll celebrate by taking a communion together uh, at the end. Now if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open it up uh, either in, in your lap or on your device. Make a beeline for Hebrews chapter 1. That's in your New Testament, Hebrews Chapter 1, we're going to be moving around a good bit this morning, but that's where uh, we'll start. That'll serve as our launch pad. And as you find Hebrews chapter 1, let me, let me just pause and pray as we prepare to enter into the Word this morning. God, we are, we are so grateful that you have not left us as orphans to just sort of flail about in this world and try to figure out what life is all about, but you've, you've given us guidance. You've given us your word. 
More than that, God, you've, you've given us, those of us who know Jesus, you've given us your Holy Spirit to guide us in all things in life. And so we're grateful this morning, God, for your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be here in this room, to be active and present in every mind and every heart, that you would open up eyes, that we would see truths that maybe we haven't seen before, Father, and maybe most importantly, that your Holy Spirit would apply these things to our hearts and our minds in such a way that we walk out of here as different men and women than we walked in here as. We know that only you can do that by the power of your spirit through your word, and so we ask that you would. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1, be on the screens for you if you don't have a Bible. The writer of Hebrews says this, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name. There's that idea again of, of the name of the Messiah that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What's in a name? It's a question that's been asked through time and history. What's in a name? Why was the Messiah named? Why was he called Jesus and not Bill or Bob or Hassan or Pedro? It's really quite, a, quite an important question that we uh, unpack together before we can go any further. And so I want to invite you to look at Matthew chapter 1. We're going to kind of see how this all went down. Matthew chapter 1, also on the screens for you. Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus, writes this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph, before they had come together, right, that's biblical language for uh, had sex, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly, right? He doesn't want to embarrass her. He doesn't want to heap shame on her, humiliate her. And so he's going to do it quietly to respect her. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name, there it is, Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. And there he quotes the book of Isaiah in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is why this is significant. Jesus was not an uncommon name in the first century. It was actually a, a modern variation of the Old Testament name, Joshua, which means God is my salvation, or Yahweh is my salvation. So even in the human name that Jesus took on for himself, there's this clear articulation from the Father about who the Savior would be. He would be Emmanuel, God with us, the one who came to save us from our sins. God with us in our mess to save us from our mess. All right, the fact that Jesus took on a human name speaks to his humanity. Now, if you're not, uh, not a Christian or maybe you're new to the faith, this 
uh, is something that you should know. As Christians, we believe that Jesus was fully divine while at the same time being fully human. Uh, Bible scholars call this the hypostatic union of Christ, right? Fully God, fully human being in one person, uh, Jesus Christ. If you ever want to impress your Bible nerd friends, if you have one of those, just bust that one out in a conversation, right? Yeah, well, what do you believe about the hypostatic union of Christ, right? They'll be very impressed. Point is this, this common human name, Jesus, with divine implications, Jesus was, by taking on that name, he was communicating that he, he was going to be fully immersed into our human experience, to be with us, to be like us, in order to save us. Y'all, listen, it's not an accident that Jesus was not born into a royal palace. It's not an accident that he was not born into a wealthy royal family. He didn't grow up in an ivory palace. He wasn't shielded from the pain, discomfort, and suffering of this world, right? He was, he was born in the dirt, as it were, a stable to a terrified, unmarried teenage mom raised by a blue-collar carpenter named Joseph. He experienced suffering and rejection and betrayal. He was tortured and even died, just like we all will. Jesus bled. He cried. He experienced frustration, disappointment, sorrow, just like all of us do. And so here's the point. Here's the big idea. If you get nothing else, here it is on the screens for you. Jesus is a real Savior for real people living real lives. And so if you're here this morning and you would have to say, well, a great cleaned up background, my life is kind of messy, I would just say, good, Jesus came just for people like you. What's in a name? Quite a bit, as it turns out when we talk about the Messiah, Jesus. That's the first aspect, Jesus, the name that he took on communicates his humanity, that he came to be with us, for us, to suffer for us. So we don't have a Savior that we can't identify with. He was not an ivory tower Savior. He's a Savior for all people of all time. That's the first facet that we see in that line of the creed. The second facet of the Messiah that we see in the creed is that he is the Christ. He's the Christ. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but uh, Christ is not Jesus' last name. I think a lot of people actually actually think that. Right? Jesus Christ, John Smith, right? Taylor Swift, LeBron James. No, it's not. that's not Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is actually a title, right? In much the same way that we would say, you know, President Obama or President Trump, President Biden. The president is not their first name. It's a designation, right? It's a title that communicates a certain level of authority, positional authority. Um, if you would allow me just, just a second to kind of nerd, nerd out with you, uh, Christ is actually the, the Greek word Christos, which, which it, really fascinating. It's a translation of the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah, meaning anointed one, the chosen one. Now, here's, here's why that matters. Go all the way back to the beginning of the story, right? Genesis chapter 1, we got the garden, we got Adam and Eve. Just imagine, everything is perfect in creation. We're talking no sin, no disease, no pain, perfect harmony between God, creation, humanity. Like, I just picture Adam, like, riding a lion and jumping off waterfalls, Naked with his wife. Like, it was perfect. It's amazing. I don't know how things could have even been better. You know how the story goes. Things go sideways. They choose sin over God. Sin is injected into the world. Creation is catapulted into disorder, disease, sickness, war, death. Never God's design. It was our sin that did that. 
But right in the middle of the ashes of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, God makes a promise to Eve in her dejection and depression. He says, listen, Eve, one day one of your descendants is going to show up on the scene. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the Christ. And he will one day crush the head of your enemy, the serpent. And so the entire story of the Old Testament really is people like longing for this promised Messiah to show up. And things keep getting worse and the world keeps getting darker and there's more sin and there's more death and people are like, man, when is this promised Christ going to show up? When is he going to show up and make things right and make things new? And so God would send his people prophets and the prophets would tell the people about what this Messiah would be like, what he was going to do when he showed up, even crazy details like where he was going to be born. And so people for hundreds, thousands of years were longing for this Messiah promised in the ashes of the garden to show up. And finally, 2,000 years ago, Jesus burst onto the stage of the world scene in history and he begins to make outrageous claims about himself. Right? Things like, things like I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, if that sounds offensive to you today, it was just as offensive 2,000 years ago when Jesus was saying this, these things, right? He was, he was basically saying, there are not many ways to the Father. There are not many ways to eternal life. I am the only way that you're ever going to find abundant life on planet Earth and in eternity. I am that pathway that God has given you to know God the Father. I am the way, I am the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He would say other really scandalous things like before Abraham was, I am. In other words, he's saying, I am, I am eternal, I am divine. There's this really stunning story in, in John chapter 4. You guys have probably heard about the story of the woman at the well. And uh, I just want to read a, a little portion of it for you. I think this will be on, on the screens for you. But Jesus is talking to this Samaritan woman, which culturally, by the way, uh, was out of bounds. He shouldn't have even been talking to this woman, but he's Jesus, of course. So he is talking to her. He engages her. And in verse 25, it says this, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, uh, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus makes a stunning claim. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, and he. Jesus goes, hey, you're, you're looking for the Messiah? You're looking for the Christ, the one who's going to set all things right again. You're looking for the Savior of the world. I'm telling you, I'm standing right here in front of you. That Messiah who was promised in the ashes of Genesis chapter 3, you're looking at him. I'm here and I came for people just like you. People on the margins, people that the world forgot about. So Jesus clearly shows up on the scene and he claims to be this promised Messiah, this promised Christ, dating all the way back to the promise in Genesis chapter 3. The early church that witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, they staked their life on this claim that Jesus actually was the Christ, the, the Messiah. Look at Acts chapter 5. It says this. This is about uh, the early Christians, the early church. It says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So the early Christians were like, man, we, we found them. The wait is over. The Messiah, the one that the prophets have spoken of and prophesied about and written about for the last thousands of years, he's here, it's Jesus. So Jesus claimed to be the Christ. The early church preached that he was the Christ. They staked their lives on the fact that he was the Christ. 
And amazingly, I love this one, maybe most of all, even the demons recognize him when he shows up on the scenes. Look at Luke chapter 4. Luke uh, was a Greek doctor, uh, investigated the life of Jesus and became a follower of Jesus and then wrote the, the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. But this is what Dr. Luke writes. He says, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any uh, who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. So they're bringing everybody that was sick in the village to Jesus. And he, Jesus, laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Now, that, that's an amazing picture if you think about it, isn't it? Like, the demons are even like, Jesus, we know who you are. You're the Son of God. You're the Christ. And Jesus is like, boy, you better be quiet. I will, I will cast you into some, some swine and make you run off a cliff, right? Jesus is like, oh, you just, just be quiet. It's not time yet. Jesus, man, he was, he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one who was promised in the ashes of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. He is the one that the prophets spoke about and wrote about in the Old Testament all those years ago. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. He is the Christ and there is no other. I love the way D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, puts it. I have this on the screens for you. Carson writes this. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was, a, was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation, our separation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and so he sent a Savior. Jesus, the Christ, is the Savior, the one all humanity has been searching for since the beginning of time in the fall in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. The third facet of Jesus that we see from this line in the creed is that he is God's only son. That's what that line says. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son. Now what we believe in this respect separates us, and you should know this, from every other world religion. Right? Islam, would, would, for, for instance, would not deny uh, the, the person, the historical person of Jesus. In fact, uh, uh, Muslims would claim that Jesus was not only a man, he was a prophet. Not only was he a prophet, he was one of the very highest prophets. But they would also say that he was, he was not divine. He certainly was not the son of God. This claim not only separates us from Islam, it separates us from Judaism. Judaism would claim that, that Jesus was one of many fraudulent messiahs who came uh, falsely proclaiming their own messiahhood. See, the sonship of Jesus is an exclusively Christian claim. It's exclusive to those of us who follow Jesus. And when we say that Jesus is God's only son, what we mean is this. Jesus is fully God. He is fully God. He is eternally the Son, right? He was not created by the Father. In fact, that, that's a heresy throughout time and, and history where some have said, well, Jesus was a creation, and maybe even he was the first creation of the Father. Uh, no, Jesus is eternal. He was not created by the Father. He has always been with the Father. He didn't show up for the first time in Bethlehem in a stable, in a manger. 
In fact, Jesus' best friend, John, in uh, the book of John, chapter 1, says that Jesus was not only present at creation, but actually that everything was created through him and for him. Hebrews 1, which we just read, also makes this claim. That Jesus was there in the beginning. He was actively participating in the creation of all that is. Jesus is eternal just as the Father is eternal, just as the Holy Spirit is eternal. And again, this points us back to the Trinitarian nature of our God. In fact, we see an amazing picture of this at the baptism of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, this will be on the screens for you. Watch this. Matthew writes this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So in that one scene, you have the Son being baptized, you have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and you have the voice of the Father proclaiming, this is the Messiah. This is the Christ, my Son, the one that you've been searching for. You've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the same picture, all actively working together. It's an incredible picture of the Trinitarian nature of our God. Then you have John 3.16, which I would argue probably stands as the centerpiece of the biblical narrative, probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible goes like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only what? Son. There's the idea of the sonship of Christ again. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinitarian God, Jesus the Christ, Truly and fully God. Listen, this is important. You need it. Don't miss this. Jesus is not like God. He is not similar to God. He is not almost God. He is truly and fully God. That's what we mean when we proclaim that Jesus is the only Son of God, that they share divine God DNA. They are the same. This is an important fact. The fourth facet that we see about Jesus the Christ in this line of the creed and, and, and maybe, maybe the one that's most controversial in the American church today, I would say, is that he is, he is our Lord. Now, this is, a, this is a Greek word, kairos, and it denotes authority. In ancient times, oftentimes, uh, slaves would call their masters by this term, kairos, Lord. Oftentimes, it was also used as a, a polite greeting, like, like sir, or mister, but depending on the context, it could denote divine authority. Let me show you an example of what I'm talking about. This is Philippians 2. This is the Apostle Paul writing on the screens for you. Paul writes this, and being found in human form, he's writing about Jesus, of course. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, so Jesus the Christ, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, there's that word again, kairos, Lord. That he is master to the glory of God the Father. Now, you've you got to know, for the early Christians in the, the first century in a, in a Roman world, for Christians to show up and say, Jesus is Lord, you've got to know how scandalous that was. You've got to know that this was a massively subversive act, right? Because Caesar was venerated as, as, as Lord, not just politically, but religiously. People all over the empire worshipped, literally worshipped Caesar as Lord. In fact, 
uh, we found Roman co- or archaeologists have found Roman coins with some pretty incredible inscriptions. Let me just read a couple to you. Uh, one Roman coin says this, Emperor Caesar, God and Lord. Another read this, uh, Nero, the Lord of the whole world. And so for Christians to show up on the scene and go, nah, none of those guys are Lord. We're not bowing the knee to any of those guys. There is one Lord, there is one Christ, and his name is Jesus, and you crucified him. That would have been scandalous and dangerous. N.T. Wright, uh, another scholar, writes this. To come to Rome with the gospel of Jesus, to announce someone else's ascension to the world's throne, therefore, was to put on a red coat and walk into a field with a potentially angry bull. When Christians said, Jesus is Lord, you need to understand this was not a trite little religious platitude. It was not a little tip of the cap to Jesus, like, ah, he's a good dude, moral dude, good teacher. No, 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 no. It is proclaiming that Jesus has kingship over the entire universe in general and over your life specifically. To call him Lord means that that you surrender all that you have and all that you are to gladly follow him wherever he leads you, whatever that cost may look like. Abraham Kuyper, another scholar, writes this, there is not a square inch of the whole domain of human existence which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! He is Lord of the entire universe. Now, here's the rub I found in the American church for most modern-day American Christians. Because there are scores of people sitting in churches just like this one this morning, maybe actually in this church this morning, who are happy to claim Jesus as Savior, but refuse to submit to Him as Lord and King. And I'm talking about people that don't even have a desire to submit to Jesus as Lord don't even have a desire to submit their sex lives to King Jesus or their wallets to King Jesus or their talents or their times to King Jesus as Lord. And y'all, listen, I'm just telling you as a pastor from a place of love, that is a concept that is found nowhere in Scripture. And I'm just telling you, that is, a, that is a fraudulent version of the Christian faith. Now, having said all that, let me, let me say this. I am not talking about perfect obedience here. Please don't walk out of here and say, man, well, Chris says because I'm not perfect, I can't be a Christian, so I guess I'm out. That's not what I'm saying. Nobody's, nobody's arguing for perfect obedience. None of us obeys perfectly. But here's what I am talking about. I'm talking about a desire to obey and please King Jesus. A hatred for the sins that beset us. That's, that's one way that I knew I was actually a Christian when I was 20 years old as a, as a college student is that my, my, my sin patterns didn't magically disappear, but I actually began to hate my sin patterns. I began to wage war against my sin with the help of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? 22 years later, I'm still fighting that battle. But by God's grace, I'm not the man I was 20 years ago. And by God's grace, five years from now, I'm not going to be the same man that you see today standing on the stage progress not perfection but the question is for you as you do a self inventory of your heart and your spirit is there even a desire there for you to submit to king jesus as lord is there even a desire because friend i would argue if there's not you've got some serious soul searching that you ought to be doing this morning 
C.S. Lewis, uh, one of the most famous authors in, in history, was an atheist professor at Oxford University, really smart dude, uh, became a follower of Jesus as an adult, uh, once said famously, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. But you have to pick. Jesus is either a liar, because he made some pretty ridiculously bold claims. They're either true or they're not. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord of all. In Matthew 16, there's this uh, really phenomenal scene where uh, Jesus looks at his disciples and he asks them a really poignant question, the same question I want to ask you this morning. The question that Jesus asked his disciples was this, who do people say that I am? So his disciples begin to answer him about the things that they've heard on the street about who he is. And so his disciples are like, well, Jesus, some say that you're John the Baptist returned from the dead, and others say that you're the prophet Elijah, and others say that you're another prophet still. And Jesus is like, cool, cool, that's great, but who do you say that I am? Let me ask you that question this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? And I love Peter's answer. Peter's answer is incredible. Jesus says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Nailed it. So friend, who do you say Jesus is? Does your heart cry that he is the Christ? That he's the Savior? Maybe even right now, like you're starting to believe that in your heart, and it's kind of scary that you're believing it because you never thought you would believe it. But you're like, man, I think that he is the Christ. I think that he is the Savior. I think that he is the Son of God. Now, some of you might say that intellectually. Some of you might even verbalize that, articulate that with your mouth. But the, the question that I think that the, the, all these passages beg is this. You may proclaim that he's Savior. You may proclaim that he's the Son of God. But is he Lord of your life? Is he Lord of your life? Because Romans 10, 9, the Apostle Paul says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, there's that word again. We can't get away from it. That Jesus is Lord. Not, not that Jesus is the Son of God. Not that, not that Jesus is a good teacher. Not that he is a way to the Father. If you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you then will be saved. It's a pretty bold claim. And I want to finish with a passage uh, from John as, as the band makes their, their way up. This is John 3.16, but we're not going to stop at 16. We're going to read a couple other verses. Oftentimes we just stop at the end of that first verse, and I, I think we ought not. So this is John, Jesus' best friend, writing. And I just want you, to, I want you to marinate on these words for a minute. We need to allow these things to kind of sink into your mind, sink into your heart, internalize these words. Think about these things maybe in a way that you never have before. John writes this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him, not has knowledge of him, not can spit out facts about him, but whoever has actual, authentic belief in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now we usually stop there. We're not going to stop there. Verse 17, this is awesome. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to condemn you. <laughs> but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's incredible news. He didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you because he loves you. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Listen, y'all, Jesus is not a reluctant Savior. He delights to save people and redeem people and forgive people and restore people. He is not a reluctant Savior. And so let me just ask you again the question that we started with. Who do you say Jesus is? No, no question more important than that that you'll ever answer in your life. And here's why that question is so critical. Guys, listen to me. You cannot know God without knowing Jesus. You cannot know God without knowing Jesus. It's impossible. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the exclusive pathway to abundant life now and forever. He is the only pathway to the Father. And here's the best news of all. He didn't come to condemn you. He came to redeem you. And so let me just ask you, have you made him Lord of your life? I'm not saying do you believe intellectually that he's the son of God or any of that kind of stuff, that he's the Christ. Even the demons believe and they tremble. Have you made him the Lord of your life? Have you waved the white flag of surrender and just said, God, I'm tired of doing life my way. I'm tired of train wrecking my own life. I want to know my creator. I want to be guided by your spirit. I want to know Jesus. I want a new life and a new mission and a new purpose. If that's you and you would have to say like, man, I've never done that. I don't have that. I want you to know that you can do that today. Before you walk out of this room, before you log off online, you can know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Let's pray and then we're going to celebrate our incredible Savior by taking the bread and taking the juice. Heavenly Father, Ah, we come to you. We confess that you are so good. You're a good God. Father, would you forgive us at times where we haven't viewed you as good or we haven't trusted you or we've thought that maybe you're holding something good back from us when ultimately you want to give us real life and real freedom and an abundant life now and forever with you through your son, Jesus. Thank you that you sent Jesus on a rescue mission, that you came off the mountain to rescue us when we had no way to get up the mountain to you. You came looking for us. Thank you that you sent the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, your only son, the Lord of the universe. I pray, God, if there's one single person in this room right now, maybe watching online right now, who has not made King Jesus the Lord of their lives, God, would, would you help them, would you give them the courage just to pray out some, some prayer like this? God, I recognize that, that I'm a sinner, that I'm separated because of my rebellion against a perfect and holy God, but I'm, I'm tired of train wrecking my my life and trying to live on my own. And so, God, the best way I know how, I want to I turn from living life my way. I want to repent. I want to turn away from my sin, and I want to trust in Jesus. I want to I know you. I want to be reconciled to, to my Creator through Jesus Christ, the, the only Son of God, the Lord of the universe. And would you, would you send me your Holy Spirit to guide me as I walk this new path of following Jesus? God, would you, would you save me? Would you, would you redeem me? 
And if you prayed that prayer, I just want to encourage you. Let somebody know if you're here with a a friend. Let them know. I'll be up here at the front. I'd love to talk with you, pray with you. If you're online, there's a chat host. Let them know that you prayed that prayer. We'll connect with you, send you a Bible, pray for you. God, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, your Son, our Lord. It's in his name that we ask and we pray. Amen.